I think uh, I'm going to start preaching like that. What do you think? It is the gospel, right? Uh, I know a few of you would like that. I wrote a lot. <laughs> I went in the last 10 minutes preaching like that, and, and let alone make it an hour. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, guys, if you have your Bible, go ahead and go to uh, Luke 14. Let me encourage you guys, uh, make sure you, even though we put the verses up on screen, bring that Bible, because that Bible is your lifeline. Uh, that Bible is God's revelation to you and I. Uh, that Bible is, uh, should be something you hold more dearly onto than most things. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. That's the end of the sermon. We can all go home now. <laughs> Just kidding. You all. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's going to be a fun day. All right. So, Luke 14, let me, let me give you a couple prefaces here as we get rolling. Um, first of all, I just want to tell you something that as, as the preacher, as the preacher, uh, I was in Kentucky for a little while, and they, they always called the pastor the preacher. That's the preacher. Uh, and, uh, hey, hey, Russ, can you pull me down just a hair? I'm, I'm kind of rumbling like God. All right. Uh, so, the preacher, um, I just want to say to you guys that my responsibility week in and week out, involves discussing or exposing what God's Word says to us. Um, there are some times when I give, you know, some personal opinions, and I typically uh, say, you know, this is, this is my opinion. Um, but most of the time, uh, 99% of the time, what we are talking about on Sunday, I believe, is straight from God's Word. Uh, and that is what drives uh, my teaching. And so that's really important, particularly with, in dealing with what we're going to talk about today, um, because I'm probably going to make a few of you upset uh, today. Um, and that's okay. I just want to go ahead and warn you right now. And let me say something else from the very beginning, is, is, or something that right down that line, is that um, it's not me, it's, it's God's Word. And what we're, particularly today, we're going to talk about something Jesus said. Uh, not that that's any more important than the rest of God's Word, but we're going to talk about what Jesus said in Luke 14 uh, today. And so, guys, what we're going to talk about is the authority of God's Word. Now, let me go ahead and give you a warning right now, or everything that I say is from the authority of God's Word. And, but I want to give you a warning right now. This sermon, if you really open your hearts today to what Jesus says in Luke 14, I don't care how mature of a believer you are. I believe you should walk away changed today. Okay? I really believe if you just let God's word sink, sink deeply into your heart, I think you'll walk away changed today. Um, the warning is this, is it's very easy for us, particularly those of us who've been believers for a long time, to go, wow, those are cute words. Wow, that's really neat. I'm glad Jesus said that. That's a good thing for us to know. And guys, it is so, so, so much more than that. And so let me just warn you right now. If something doesn't start tugging at your hearts as we go through this passage today, there could be something wrong. Okay? Okay. Um, the other thing I want to say is that as a pastor, I don't have this passage figured out 100% myself. Um, it would be completely wrong for me to say that I've got this figured out. Um, it's the same thing goes with every other week, but like, guys, as I was studying this passage, um, as I was listening to another preacher preach on this passage, like, my heart just, like, sank. My, my heart went, oh my gosh, you want me to preach on this? Like, I haven't even remotely begun to figure this out. And uh, it broke my heart. Like, to tears broke my heart. And almost does this moment as well. Because I've been a believer for 20, 20 years, 21 years, something like that. And I'm going, I wish I'd have known this a long time ago. And it's not anybody else's fault. It's my fault. I should have been studying God's word much more harder through all my life. And um, so let me just, I just want to say I don't have it figured out. The other, the last thing I want to say as, as we get going is this is... Um, what this passage looks like for each of us is going to, the details of it is going to be relatively different. Um, the principles in the passage are going to be the same for all of us. And 
the, but the specifics. And here's the deal. I want to try and stay away from the specifics because we, if, 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 if I just give you a checklist, that's all it will be to you is a checklist. So if I just do these things, then, then I'm okay. And here's the deal. That is Christianity consisting of external regulations that bypass the heart. And we live in a Christianity in a world today where all we want is a checklist so that when I can check that off, I can feel better about it. And that's not what God's word is about. It's not about a checklist. God's word is about us discovering truth that drives us to the spirit of God to spend hours wrestling before God in prayer about how his word applies to our lives. That's the purpose. It's not, and I'm not talking about spending, necessarily spending hours about what does this passage mean, even though that's valuable too, and we need to do that. What I'm talking about is, it's not just, you hear the sermon, and here's your one, two, three things you need to do, and now once I can check that off, I'm good to go. It's not about that. Because I'm not going to give you specifics on purpose today, because I want you to take what we talk about, and I want you to spend time in prayer before God, asking, how does this look in my life? Where do I need to make these changes? Because if all we do is talk with each other and check off boxes, we miss God's design. He desires to bring us along with his word and his spirit to change our hearts. Yes, it results in external actions, but is rooted in internal change. This is what Jesus got all over the Pharisees about. He said, you have all these external actions and all these things, but your heart is far from me. And guys, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. Guys, it's, it's, it's a big struggle of mine personally where I, I just do, 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 and my heart is somewhere in a foreign country. And the danger is so true for us as well. Because we will do in our culture, in our brand of Christianity, we will do everything we can to bypass the necessary time before God in prayer to experience internal change. We will. I do it. I just need that checklist. Then I don't have to spend the however many hours it could be in prayer um, before God to discover. <laughs> We're going to play musical chairs for a second. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will bypass. Listen, raise my back up here. We will bypass the necessary hours needed to spend, uh, spending time with God to discover the internal change that needs to take place. We won't do that. And then we go through life having check marks and everybody on the outside goes, well, they got it together. They got it together. They're doing good. They're doing good when your heart is far from us. And so um, here's the challenge. I don't want you to just hear the word. I don't want you to just hear the word and talk about it. I don't, don't want you to just hear the word, talk to each other, and discover the practical stuff. I want you to take the word we talked about today, dive into your prayer closet, and ask God how this applies to my life. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that it would not be me speaking today, um, that it would be your word, um, and that, Father, you would just guide my heart, guide my passion, Father, this is something that I don't have figured out. And Father, don't let me preach it as if I have it figured out. But Father, we're all in the same boat together. And so Father, just bless our time, open our hearts, and let us see your word and the glory of your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Here's the question for today. This is going to drive everything we talk about. The question for today is this. Have you ever come to Jesus on his terms? Have you ever come to Jesus on his terms? Are you willing to come to Jesus on his terms? That's the question that's going to drive us today. I ask because the brand of Christianity that we've adopted operates on coming to Jesus by our terms. The brand of Christianity from small church to large church to parachurch ministry to, to families, all of us, the brand of Christianity in the United States, by and large, operates on coming to Jesus by our terms. 
I mean, look, look how we describe Christianity. Look, look at the terms that we use. And guys, I'm guilty of this myself. So I, like, seriously, like, I'm, I'm preaching to myself for the next however long. Uh, and just, this is things that, that God has corrected and rebuked me on this past week. But look at how we call people to follow Christ and how I have. You know, follow the Romans road. Follow the Romans road. Or believe, uh, for some of you younger people, this, you won't have any clue about this track, but there was a track out at one point called The Four Spiritual Laws. And the track, four spiritual, if you just believe these four spiritual laws, you're a follower of Jesus. Or answer these questions right, and you're a follower of Jesus. And the fact is, Jesus told his disciples none of these things. Jesus told his disciples, Jesus never said, well, if you just read Paul's book in Romans, or Paul's book Romans, and you just follow these five passages, you can, and you believe those, you can be my savior, or you can be my savior, you can be my follower. Jesus told them none of these things. Matter of fact, let's look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 26 says this. It says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Just pause there for a minute. Just let that sink in, sink in for just a moment. Yes, Jesus really did just say that. 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Second illustration here, or what king... Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, and, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Can you imagine the crowd standing before Jesus when he said these words? Can you imagine? Like, so who, who does this guy think he is? Like, I'm supposed to hate my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. I'm supposed to pick up an instrument of torture. I'm supposed to give up everything I have to follow you. I'm supposed to give up everything to follow you. Most of us, I think, uh, he would have lost us at the first few words. Um, you know, I, I, I don't even like to imagine um, what my response would have been when Jesus said those words 2,000 years ago. I like to think that I've been, Jesus, it's all yours. Uh, here I am, I want to follow you. I, I like to think that. But I stand here today saying, I, I don't know for sure that I would have answered that way. For us, we think following Christ is easy because for most of us, it costs us very little. Even myself. It costs me very little. You know, some people ask, is this, is this passage like too hard for us? To, like, is this the kind of passage you teach on a Sunday morning? Like, is this, isn't this the kind of passage that, that we should talk about with like mature believers, people who have been in the faith for a long time? I mean, isn't, isn't this like, like the deep class for spiritual Christians? No. This was Jesus' intro speech to those who were debating on following him. 
This was to the people that we today consider, and we're in this day as well, lost. People who didn't go to church. These were the onlookers following Jesus around going, hmm, he's got some pretty good teaching. And Jesus says, look, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother, brother, father, sister. Yes, even your own life. You have to give it all up to follow me. Do you think that that built a big crowd very quickly? Do you? No. No. I mean, the people are going, oh, Yeah, not so sure about that one. You know what's amazing? Is that for some of us, this might even be the first time we've even heard this passage. And yet these terms for the rest of us seem so extreme. I have to hate my brother and my father. And and, and it just shows how far we have strayed in our brand of Christianity, our cultural Christianity, our comfortable Christianity. Christianity, so far that we would even ask questions like this, can you be a believer and not a disciple? Can you be a follower of Christ and not actively seeking God and seeking his word and, and studying his Bible and, and, and going to church to learn, like, like, can you be a believer and not a disciple? We would even ask questions like, can you be a believer and not, not intimately involved in a community of faith? Or can you be a believer and not read your Bible? You know, we, we, in Christianity, it's, it's as if there's levels of Christianity. There's, there's a thin level where it doesn't really cost us very much, where it doesn't really cost you very much, a, a thin level. And then there's a, a deeper level for those interested, you know, they can go deeper, you know, into a higher, greater level of Christianity. And the fact is, these two levels and these ideas of being a believer and not a disciple, are, the New Testament knows nothing about that. The New Testament, this, this is foreign concepts, the New Testament, but it is all over our Christianity today. It's all over our preaching. It's, it's all over our churches and our beliefs and our, and our commitment. And, and it's everywhere. And, and we think of Christianity as if it's just this thing that I'm a part of. But Jesus says, at a very elementary level, at the very beginning, If you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother, brother, father, sister. Yes, even your own life. And you have to forsake it all to follow. Like, those are just the beginning. Like, if you don't do it, you cannot be his disciple. That's what he's saying. Guys, that's intense. We, this is our brand of Christianity says, well, you know, you you might, you, you know, if you want to come to Jesus, you'll have an abundant life. You know, it might be hard, but, but Jesus, you know, help you get through it. Like, that's, that's how we sell Christianity. That's how I've sold Christianity, and I have repented for it. Jesus sells Christianity as, if you want to follow me, you must give up everything to be my disciple. Matter of fact, you must hate your mother, father, brother, and sisters. These are his basic requirements. Jesus is speaking to a crowd that have been flirting with him on their terms. Well, we, we're going to just stand just close enough to Jesus where it doesn't cost us a whole lot, but maybe just a little bit so that well, we can just you kind of hear this good teacher. And guys, I'm afraid that a lot of us can stand or are standing in that same position going, all right, Jesus, I'm just close enough. Guys, this is where I've spent a lot of my life at is I'm just close enough that it, that it doesn't cost me a whole lot, but just enough that I look good on the outside and it makes me feel good on the inside. And that's not what Jesus, the guy, he's saying, I, with that standard, that I cannot even be his disciple. Because this is an evangelistic text. And Jesus inviting people to follow him for the first time. So I ask the question again, have you ever really came to Jesus on his terms. So in this passage, three things Jesus requires. Three things. There's blanks on your paper. I want to encourage you, man, take notes because you need to be praying all over these words all week long and for the rest of your life. So take really good notes. First thing that Jesus requires, according to this passage, according to God's word, is superior love. 
Jesus requires superior love. If we go to Luke, back to, back to Luke 14, verse 26, he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you say, but I thought we were supposed to love people. I thought God said we were supposed to love people. So how can we, like our parents, how can I hate them and how can I honor them at the same time? Like, I mean, that's a really good question, right? That's a great question. How can I love them and honor them and hate them at the same time? And yes, you know, am I really supposed to hate my kids? Let me tell you something. That's, I'm going to warn you of something. It is very easy for us at this point to try to soften Jesus' words in order to accommodate the lifestyle that we have. In order to accommodate the way that we want to believe. It is easy for us to soften Jesus' word. Oh, he didn't really mean that. What he really meant was this. So in light of that, let's go. I want you to go to Matthew. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, just a few pages to the left. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. This is a conversation between Jesus and an expert teacher of the law. He says this in 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, this is Jesus talking, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest. This is the first. This is the, pro- this is the most important commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend on the, uh, and on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He does not say with part of your heart, with the first part of your heart, or with the first part of your soul, and then you can give it to everybody else. He doesn't say that that that. It's the first thing. He says, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That destroys the idea that there are priorities in our affections. Meaning the things that we love, the things that are important to us, the things that we show affection towards. There is no, it's not God and then family and then our friends and then church and then, there is no, our affections belong 100% to God, period. He says all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, our God is everything. He is primary. He is supreme. He is superior. All our affections belong to God. And loving our neighbor, hear me closely, loving your neighbor flows out of your love for God. Loving your neighbor flows out of your love for God. You see, there's a love that supersedes over all other loves. And if we go to Matthew chapter 10, just a, just a couple pages to the left. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. These words will seem quite familiar. It says, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's read it again. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, there's a comparisons of love, I think, what's going on or what is going on here. And our love for God must be much greater. So what we have to do is we have to reconcile these two texts together. What is going on? Luke, who tends to be a, um, very detailed in his accounts and not saying that Matthew has it wrong here because Matthew does not have it wrong here. But we have to reconcile these two passages together and and. Again, we have to be careful to not soften Jesus' words when he says hate. I mean, hate, that, that's an offensive word, isn't it? I mean, and, and I know most of you are looking at me going, all right, dude, like, you're going to have to get to it real quick because you're losing me. I, I, I just, how can I hate my mother? And I want to tell you guys, just hang on with me for a few more moments. Guys, 
We cannot soften Jesus' words here. And here's what I believe Jesus means. When he says, hate your mother and brother, if you do not do these things, you cannot follow after me. We First of all, we talked about how our affections belong 100% to God. All our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And out of that comes our love. And so what happens is our love for God must be so supreme, so intense, that every other love in our, li- uh, every other love in our life looks like hatred. You get the picture. So our love for God is so strong and so much stronger than our love for everything else that our love for everything else looks like hatred. Because our love for God, our love for everything else, here's the beauty of it. When we love God with all our heart, with all our soul and all our mind, when we in turn love other people, love our families, love our church, love the people around us, love our neighbor. If we're 100% of our love is going towards God, then the only love at which we can be loving those people with is with the love of God. And I don't know about you, but last time I checked, his love is a whole lot greater than my love. His love is a whole lot unconditional than my love. His love is a whole lot selfless than my love. Husbands, how can you play out Ephesians 5.25 where it says to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Well, if you love Jesus with all of your heart, then the love that you're going to be showing to your wife is the love of Christ, which is the love that he showed to the church. Doesn't it make sense? The love that, that if all of our love is going to Christ, then when that passage, when Paul says to love your wife, says Christ loved the church, that's literal. Like he means you can love your wife with the love that Christ had for the church if all of your love is going to Christ, and then out of that comes Christ's love through you to your wife. It wasn't just a figure of speech. It wasn't just a metaphor, a cute little thing for us to think about. He was saying, you can love your wife as Christ loved the church, but you have to love. Jesus says, all of your love, all of your affection is mine. Not me first and then everybody else. It is all mine. Guys, our love for God and our love for our neighbor is not mutually exclusive, but one flows from the other. It starts with a love for Christ, the supremacy of Christ, Because when our hearts are conquered by a superior affection for God, that's when we begin to love people as Christ has commanded us to love. Guys, if we are not loving Christ with all of who we are, and he is not all, everything to us, then we cannot begin to love people even remotely close to the way God has called us to. I look at the love inside of churches often, and churches that I've been in, and the love is absent. You know why it's absent? It's because they don't love God like they should. We'll just say it the way it is. Guys, if our love in this church for each other is not what it should be, it's because we have people inside of our church that don't love God the way they're supposed to. Because we're trying to love each other with our love instead of loving each other with God's love. And there is an infinite greatness in between those two. It's amazing that we'd hear Christians say today, I need to, yeah, I know, I, I need to be in church. Or, I know, I need to take my children to church. Or, I know, I need to read my Bible. Because that is not Christianity. That is American Christianity. That is not biblical Christianity. I know I need to go to church. And... Guys, Christianity does not consist of begrudging obedience to Christ. Imagine with me for a second that I came home uh, and gave Sarah a big old kiss on the lips. I walk in the door and give her a big old kiss on the lips. You, go, you heard this uh, uh, example given if you were here at Secret Church. Uh, David Platt gave this example in there. And he said, imagine if I came home and I gave my wife a big old kiss on the lips. And, and uh, as if I never do that, which I, I don't always give her a big old kiss on the lips, but we do embrace and hug, you know. Uh, and often a big kiss on lips. But uh, imagine I never did that. And I walked in the door and I said, come here. And I give her a big old hug. And she goes, why'd you do that? Well, it says here in my manual to give wife hug and kiss as soon as I walk in the door. Like, like seriously, that, 
manual's going to get shoved down my throat in about two seconds, right? <laughs> Take that. Kiss your book, you know. Because that is no way to love. That is no way to love. Well, you know, and we'll say this. Well, you know, we let the things go in this life that we love, and we do the things Christ commanded us to save our own skin. Because that's not Christianity. Begrudging obedience is not Christianity. But biblical Christianity is this, and hear me so, so, so clearly. Biblical Christianity is this. We are so infatuated and in love with Christ that it drives everything we do. It's not a book that we just check off these lists of things to do. It is our love for Christ and our desire for him is so strong that it, does, that it drives everything that we do, and oh, I'm so guilty of not living that life. In light of that verse, in light of this verse, I want to ask you the question, do, do you love Christ? Listen, do you love Christ? Do you want Christ? Hear me, men, this is not just a ladies feel good emotional moment. Men, do you love Christ? Do you want Christ? Do you love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind? I'm not asking, listen, I'm not asking, do you go to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you teach? All of that is rubbish. Do you want Christ? Let's get through all the checkmark stuff. And at the end of the day, throughout the day, all day long, do you want Christ? Do you love him? Is the reason why you live and the one for whom your heart beats and your affections are driven? Is that Christ? This is the picture of superior love and it makes every other love look like hate. When the one for whom your heart beats is the one who gave his heartbeat for you. In our culture, we idolize our children, we idolize our marriages, sex, relationships, parents, families, friends, to the point where Jesus gets the leftovers from our affections. This is not Christian. You can't even be a disciple of Christ. Did you hear me? You forsake all relationships in favor of an intimate relationship with Jesus. I know that that's so extreme. I'm not the one who said it, though. Well, I'm supposed to take care of my kids. Look, if you're loving Jesus with the love that he's called you to, you'll take care of your kids. But you forsake all relationships in favor of an intimate relationship with Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what it means. Um, I'm going to give you an example. John Bunyan, he was in the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And he basically he was in a time of, of uh, persecution, and he was told that if you don't stop preaching, that you'll be imprisoned. Understand, John Bunyan was not well off. He didn't have this big castle. He wasn't wealthy. Matter of fact, he was very, very poor. Matter of fact, he had a child who was blind. So imagine if he was put into prison, what his family would go through. So he was told not to stop, or he was told to stop preaching. And if not, you will go to jail. And, and so the question is, John Bunyan, what did you do? What do you do if you go to jail? Your family will go through so, so, so much intense suffering and, and without. Like they could even starve. John Bunyan, what do you do? And Bunyan says, you keep preaching. I want to read to you. He wrote this from his jail cell. He says this. Departed from my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And then not only because I am fond of these great mercies, he was talking about his family and his children, but also because I have brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family is likely to be meeting with, especially my poor blind child who laid nearer to my heart than all I have. 
Oh, the thought of the hardship. But yet, I must venture all with God. Oh, I've seen in this condition, I am like a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Jesus requires superior love. There is no option. You must have superior love for God if you want to be a disciple of his. There is no option. The question is, does he have that from you? If not, you cannot be his disciple. These are Jesus' words, not mine. The second thing Jesus requires, it does not get any easier from here. The second thing Jesus requires is exclusive loyalty. Sound like a military guy up here. Exclusive loyalty. Yep. Military terms like that would have been familiar with them at that point. If there's anyone who knew exclusive loyalty, it was the Roman guards. Luke 14, 27 says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross. You know, it's amazing. Carry your cross. Hear me, because I I really want to correct something that is terribly misused and misunderstood. We think of people and say, this drives me crazy. Well, I've got this illness and, you know, and and, uh, this, this is going on in my life. And, you know, that's just the cross that I bear. That is not what Jesus had in mind here. So how, we talked about this in, in, in Scripture for Dummies, our series on how to interpret, how to understand God's Word. Our goal is to understand what was the author intending for the readers to understand. That's our drive. He determines the meaning. And then from there, part of understanding Scripture is how would the hearers in that day have understood what Jesus or Paul or Saul was, was writing. And so our, object, our goal here is what would the people have been thinking about when Jesus says to pick up your cross or to carry your cross. And once again, he says you can, cannot be my disciple unless you do. Guys, in this time period, the only time you would have carried a cross is if you were a convicted criminal. It's kind of like being on death row. It's very much like being on death row. And the only people that go on death row is those who are convicted criminals who are punished to die. A cross beam would be hoisted onto their back. They would have to carry it through town. Public humiliation on the way to their death. Guys, we need to feel the weight, no pun intended, of carrying the cross. Like we need to feel the weight of what that means. To carry your cross. You are a convicted criminal on your way to death. It would be like today, it'd be like Jesus saying, you know, you know, you need to go sit in your electric chair and if you don't, you cannot follow me. As a matter of fact, that even fails in comparison to the cross because the cross was so much more painful, so much more humiliation. The reality is this, if you're carrying your cross, if you're carrying your cross, you are a dead man walking. The point which which you're convicted and you're going to carry your cross, the cross is on your back, you are now a dead man walking. Hear me, there's no more dreams for you, there's no more plans for your life, there's no more ideas for what you're going to do, there's everything is over for you. There's no more pride. There's no more honor. You're walking through public humiliation headed towards the place where you will hang to your death. You are a dead man walking. And Jesus says, this is the picture of what it means to follow me. Jesus is saying, we die to the life that we live. Guys, if you're a Christian If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, hear me, you are dead. You're dead to yourself, you're dead to your dreams, you're dead to your hopes, you're dead to your plans, you're dead to your ideas. He says in that 26, even his own life, if he does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
because you do not live based on your desires any longer. Guys, you know how hard this hit me this past week? As a matter of fact, it was, just, it was very liberating. Because you know what? It, it, it's no longer, all right, Matt, what do I want? It's, it's, it is, and it's not, even, it's not even Jesus guide my desires. It's not that anymore, guys. It's, it's not Jesus, please help me to desire what I it, It's Jesus, help me to desire you and what you want and what you have for my life and the plans you have for me and my family. And, and, and Jesus, what? Well, you just take the, you just guide. You just take You say this question, but um, hey, Matt, like we're all breathing. <laughs> like last time I checked. So, so what, what are we talking? Guys, this is what Paul's talking about in Galatians 2.20. That I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Once again, look at those pictures, man. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you are a dead man walking. And Paul says, it's not I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So when we pick up our cross and we are a dead man walking, it is Christ who is living inside of us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are dead to self-esteem thinking, self-saturated desiring, self-centered planning for our lives, self-comforting lives, and we are alive to Christ, Christ-esteemed thinking, Christ-desiring, Christ-planning, Christ-centered living. This changes our priorities. You know, if you're like all down and life kind of stinky, look, it doesn't matter because it's not about your life. It's about Christ living through your life. And so if you're struggling, if life is hard and, and, you're in, and things like coming down on top of you, it doesn't matter because Jesus is the one living that life through you. It's not about us. It's about Christ. You do not, hear me, you do not determine where you live, what kind of a house you have, what kind of car you drive, the clothes that you wear. You are a dead man walking. Christ determines all of that. Our brand of Christianity knows nothing of this. Christ determines everything. This is, guys, here, this is a huge claim to authority over your life. I recognize that. Going on in that passage, starting at verse 28, Jesus goes on to give us two illustrations that we're going to look at. Illustration number one. For which of you, this, this is verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus is warning here against hasty emotional decisions to follow him. He says to realize the cost. This is so different than, and I'm so guilty of this myself. This is so different than the typical evangelist. You know, he asks these questions. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? You say yes. Well, then you are saved. The problem with that is that the devil can answer yes to both of those questions. And uh, last time I checked, he doesn't have a place in heaven. And Christ is not his all. Jesus is pleading, count the cost. Remember, he's speaking to a crowd of onlookers who are trying to decide, do I follow this man named Jesus? And he says, to count the cost. Because there's a cost that needs to be considered. Some, guys, some of you claim that to, to be following Christ and your cost is very little. But you say, you know, I'm going through so much hard stuff. And, but our cost is very little. Jesus says it will cost us everything. And if it hasn't cost you everything, then there's something lacking. John Stott said this. He said, 
The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. This is contemporary Christianity. Half-built towers. I didn't know it was going to cost me everything. Jesus is saying, count the cost. Count the cost. Illustration number two. Going on in that passage, he says this in verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is not declaring a, a war here. This is not a holy war passage. He is talking about counting the cost. Like what, what king or what leader would not count the cost before he sent out of his troops out there? Have you got 10,000 troops and they're going to face 5 million troops? Like you're going to count that cost because you know what? It's going to cost you all 10,000 because they're going to die. He says count the cost and I just want to, for a moment, we live, and the United States has not been in a wartime mentality for a long time. We've been in a, a, a peacetime mentality. And what, do you, what are the differences, you ask? Well, wartime faith is how can we sacrifice for the cause? How can I best contribute to accomplishing the mission? Not indulging in pleasantries. Like when it's wartime, it's not how comfortable can I be. It's how uncomfortable can I be to get the job and the mission done. And when it's peacetime, it's, you know, comfort's the name of the game. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the mission that God has called us to. And I'm, again, I'm so guilty of this. We need to live with a wartime faith. What can we give up for the cause? What can we sacrifice for the cause? And guys, the cause is seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the cause. That is why we do what we do as a church, just in case there was any confusion. What we do as a church is foreseeing those who are going to hell, now going to heaven through their saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the cause. And for us, Jesus says, count the cost. That's Christ's cause. And if we're going to follow Christ, our cause becomes the same. And Jesus did not live this life that he lived in abundance, in comfort, in pleasantries. He gave up everything for us. Everything for us. Everything for us. And he says, consider the cost. What would happen if we looked around at the lost people around us and said we are not going to use these grand things, these comfortable things, that we are not going to use and seek after comfort, but instead we're going to get uncomfortable for the purpose of the gospel. The gospel. When everything is up, it's turned down, and you, you heard it. Jesus says, consider the cost. Number three. So number one is superior love. Second one is exclusive loyalty. Number three is Jesus requires his total loss. 
Luke 14.33 says, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Once again, there's no way to soften what Jesus is saying here. As for the cause of Christ, we give up everything. We give up everything. We say goodbye. We relinquish everything we have. If we want to follow Christ, we have to give up everything we have, not some things. The reality is this, and this is very true for me as well, is that Christ has full reign over the things in my life that I have been most comfortable giving him as opposed to having full reign over everything. As our lives, our passions, our dreams, our family, what about our houses, our cars, our clothes, our TVs, our iPhones? Like, are we willing to renounce it all for, the, for following Christ, for loving Christ? Do we give up everything? Do we say everything is yours to use for the sake of the cause? I'm not just talking about money, guys. I'm talking about your thought life, your hearts, your affections, your emotions. Every aspect of you, are you willing to give everything up for the sake of the lost? Do we say it's yours to use for the sake of the poor? Is our worship yours for the sake of the lost? So the question is, how does this look in our lives? How does this look in our lives? Hebrews 10.32, I want to read this passage real quick. It says, but recall the former days when... When after you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They joyfully accepted the afflictions that they were in. How? How? How do we live this life of giving up everything and renouncing everything? It's because the great reward awaits us. Because something better we already have. And you know why we want to hold on to our stuff so much? Or, or the things that we do in this life, the desires that we have, is because we think that they're greater than Christ. And of that we all need to repent. I want to keep it. Over in Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has planned for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God because they're not looking back. They're not looking at what they've given or what they've lost and what they've sacrificed. They're looking ahead to what's ahead. To a city that God has prepared for them. They joyfully accepted everything being gone because something better is coming. As we live in a city, we live in a country that is inundated with stuff. That we are just consumed by stuff. More things. Give me more. Guys, Jesus did not call us to live that style of Christianity. And you know, don't you think that that's what the people around us need to see? Is that Christ means more to us than our stuff? Than our comfort? 
Do you think that they might want that kind of faith? Because, again, I'm so guilty of it. When people look at me, they go, yeah, that faith, that's kind of cool. What would happen if they looked at Matt McBee and they go, man, whatever it is that he has in this religion thing is so much greater to him. His heart beats for that. That's all he desires. All he cares about is this love for his God. His stuff does not matter. But here's the problem. When people look at us, they go, well, you get your stuff from Jesus, and I get my stuff from Elder Beerman. So at the end of the day, we both have stuff, and so I really don't care. Guys, that's how we live Christianity. We live Christianity seeking stuff. Because we think that our stuff is more satisfying than Christ. It's not Christianity. And you say the question, do you, well, Matt, do you, do you want us to like all suffer? Like all the stuff you're telling, like, do you want us to all suffer? I want us to be satisfied. I want us to be satisfied in Christ. We have grown to believe that stuff satisfies. That stuff satisfies. And it doesn't. Hebrews eleven twenty four says this by faith Moses when or, um, yeah twenty four by faith Moses when he has when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward Moses I don't want the pleasures of Egypt because I want Christ. I don't want the pleasures of this wealth and this comfort. I want Christ. Guys, you know what's amazing is that the sacrifice of a Christian, the reality is is that when we realize the reward, it doesn't seem so much like sacrifice anymore. Not when you get Christ. Not in light of his greatness. Because that's not sacrifice. It's just plain smart. We have a reward now. We have a reward to come. Because he did not die on the cross. Hear me, because there's preachers all over TV that say this. God did not die on the cross so that we could use his name to claim more stuff. He died on the cross so that we could have him. And here's the deal. He's the reward, not heaven. Because heaven, when we think of heaven, we think of more stuff. We think of streets of gold. We think of a mansion. We think of a big, big house with lots and lots of food. We think of more stuff. Heaven is not more stuff. Heaven is Christ. Heaven is us experiencing the fullness of Christ, the glory of Christ, the enjoyment of Christ. We need to want that. We're willing to forsake all things for him. This is a different type of Christianity. Because you know what? This is so cool. It's a call. Jesus' call here is a call to supreme reward. It's a call to supreme reward. So Jesus requires, number one, a superior love. A love for him will radiate out to the proper love for our neighbors, for our mother, our father, our brothers, our sisters. Because you cannot love them with your love like God has called you to love them. You have to have God's love and Christ's love to love them like he has called us to love our brothers and mothers and sisters and fathers and and even our own lives. Guys, your mom and your dad is not worthy of superior love. Your kids are not worthy of superior love. Christ alone is worthy of superior love. Christ alone. He is supremely loving. And that's what we were created for. 
Second, he requires exclusive loyalty. He is perfectly loyal. We will forsake our plans, hearing, we will forsake our plans and desires when we trust that he knows what he is doing. And the fact is, he is infinitely wise, he is infinitely power. He knows what he is doing. Third thing is requires total loss. Guys, he, here's the beauty, he headed to the cross and gave up everything for us so that we could have everything in him. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about people making kids making mud pies in the slums when, when they uh, could be living a life, a holiday at the beach. That was another quote that Dr. Platt used in Secret Church. And it's so true that we are willing to settle for so much less when we could have so much more in Christ. The question is, have you ever come to Jesus on these terms? Have you ever come to Jesus on these terms? The, for some of you, you've, you've never even began to follow, go down the road of being a disciple of Christ. And um, I just, I just want to say that there's repentance and faith. Repenting of your sin, turning towards Christ, and believing that he died for your sins. And beginning this life of following Christ. That is salvation. You can have that today. Um, for a lot of us who've been believers for a long time, we've been believers, but we, we have like one foot in the door and one foot out. And Jesus says, you can't even be my disciple unless you're all in. For some of us, we need to step all the way in. Guys, for most of my life, I've had one foot in and one foot out. We need to have both feet in. Stop playing in the shallow end, guys. Let's just jump in. Remember, it's not your life anyways, it's his. I know that this, uh, this sermon... Um, it's not a popular thing. But I'm not the one that wrote it. Jesus did. And so um, I just want to call us to this. I want to call us to abandon our lives, our desires, our pleasures in favor of Christ and his desires and his pleasures and his life. Paul says it's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. I am crucified with Christ. I carry the cross. I am a dead man walking. And guys, here's the, when we are a dead man walking, when we are carrying our Christ, that's when we are most alive in the Christ who died for us, in our Savior. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one more song. Now really, take this next song to reflect to reflect, ask God. The song is called Beautiful Lord. And, and, and if Christ is your all, if you don't, even if you don't know the tunes, man, focus on the words. And let's take this time to pray and search your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you don't call us to mediocre Christianity that you don't call us to a haphazard way of living life. But Father, you have called and made a way for us to experience life to the fullest. To experience supreme love. To experience the fullness of you. And we don't have to wait till heaven. We don't have to wait. We just have to push ourselves out of the way. Father, I pray that every single one of us walks out of here a different person. And Father, if there is someone in here who has not 
began to follow your son Jesus. I pray that you use these moments to draw their hearts to you, that they would repent of their sins, and that they would believe and put their trust and make you Lord of their lives. And Father, I pray that you are beginning to draw all of us on your terms and not ours. And Father, in your Son's name I pray. Amen. Would you guys all stand? And let's sing this song. My prayer is that we leave different than when we walked in this door, guys. This is, has, is, is a very hard thing for us to talk about, very hard thing for us to think about. But guys, I hope that you understand that when we think about the reward, our sacrifice seems so little. Is let's live this life in light of the glorious life that God has called us to live. And with the love of God, with the love of Christ, when we've given it all to him, we can take that love and give that to our spouses, to our kids, to our families, to our neighbors. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. That you're beautiful. That your son gave it all for us so that we can have all of him. Father, thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys dismissed. Have an awesome day.